For quite a while now, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We're nearing the end of it, but we are continuing in that this morning by turning to chapter 19, where we will pick up at the end of verse 16 and read through verse 30. In your pew Bibles, that can be found on page 1076, or you can follow along in the words behind me on the screen. Lately, we have watched Jesus be arrested and put on trial before the religious leaders and then the uh, political figures, and now we find of his going to that old rugged cross. It says, so they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, we've been working through this Gospel of John for quite some time, and from the very beginning, we have been prepared for this moment. It goes all the way to chapter 1, where we were told that the Word was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
We were prepared throughout the whole section where we saw the signs that Jesus performed revealing who he was, but also pointing to that ultimate sign that would come of him on the cross. And how through those signs, his popularity grew with many as they put their faith in him, and yet it was a threat to many in power who determined that they were going to kill him. We were prepared for this in that long discourse between chapters 13 and 17 where Jesus spoke with his disciples telling them exactly what was about to take place, why it was going to take place, and comforting and preparing them for this very moment. And here we are. And yet, when we get here, what strikes us is the fact that John is remarkably reserved in telling the story. John didn't write with verse numbers that we use to this day. That was added much, much later. But in our Bibles, it's amazing that in just a section of 15 verses, we go from the end of Jesus' trials where he is pronounced guilty and then his death. Just 15 short verses. And in those verses, we know that John is glossing over many hours of agony and pain that Jesus was enduring on that cross. We also know that he's glossing over many details that were included and mentioned in the other gospels as well, which again leads us to needing to pay careful attention to what John does mention. And it causes us to ask, well, what is he trying to communicate in including the few details that he does in the telling of the story the way that he tells it in this text? So as we read through this text, we will find that it divides pretty nicely into five different sections. And for this morning, what we're going to do is just look at each one of those five sections in a brief way to see what are the details that John is highlighting in this part of the story. So we start with verses 16 to 18. These first verses basically give a very straightforward and succinct description of the move that Jesus makes from the court of Pilate to Golgotha in Aramaic or in Latin, Calvary, the place where he will be crucified. And again, here we see just how reserved John is in the details. Really, there are no uh, details expounded upon of what Jesus went through on that journey. There are really no details given of what it means for him to be crucified beside that word. And, and as we wonder about why that is, there's a couple of options presented. First of all, it could be that he didn't need to tell his audience the details because they would have known. Crucifixion was the common form of capital punishment in that day. And they would have regularly seen the victims of crucifixion hanging on their crosses outside of the city. And so when John, in those simple words, say he was crucified, they would have known that after his sentence, Jesus would again have been beaten brutally. They would have been able to picture what it was like for him to try to carry that heavy beam of his cross through all of the streets into the journey outside of the city as he struggled with that weight. 
They would have known he would have been positioned, how he would have been positioned on the cross and secured to it with the nails through his hands and through his feet. They would have seen too often the struggle of the person pushing up on the nails so that they can just get one more breath, struggling to fill their lungs with air, and after which they slump back down, tearing at the nails, securing them to the cross. They would have been able to imagine the blood, the hurt, the cries of pain that would have come from him in that most wretched and torturous of deaths. And since they would have known all of that, there would be no point in explaining or expounding on all of those details that we might be less informed about and interested in. But a more likely option is that this is not where John wants us to focus our attention. Yes, the details are important. And yes, those details are gory, awful, and painful, John would know he was there and he saw all of it. And while we shouldn't be ignorant of all of the pain that Jesus went through or pass over it too quickly, forgetting about the realities of this awful death that Jesus died, we also shouldn't focus on that part of this, on the pain. Because what is more important than what Jesus went through when he was crucified is why he was crucified. And we shouldn't let the gory details of the crucifixion overshadow that reality of the greater truth. And we get a glimpse of the reality of that greater truth already in this first section. We are told in verse 18 that they, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And while many would assume that this is just a detail of history included by John, the student of Scripture would hear in that detail echoes from the Old Testament. They would be reminded of the words of Psalm 22, verse 16, that said, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Or they would also hear Isaiah 53, 12 that says, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So John is letting us know that what is happening to Jesus is not a mistake, but this is exactly what God had prophesied would happen. The plan of salvation is being worked out in this moment exactly as God had revealed it would. That leads us to our next section, verses 19 through 22. Over the last two sermons, when we saw Jesus in the trials, I said that I highlighted the fact that no real charges were actually being brought because no true charges could be brought against this innocent man. And yet, it was customary for those who were being crucified to have their charges posted above them on their crosses as another way of deterrent, a way of saying, this people, notice, is what happens when you steal from others, for example. Well, a similar sign is placed on the cross of Jesus. 
It says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it's written in Aramaic, the language of the Israelites of that day. It is written in Latin, the language of the Romans. And it is written in Greek, the common language of commerce shared throughout the empire. The Jewish leaders object to this statement, wanting Pilate to soften it, saying, don't put those words that he was, but just put that he claimed to be. But Pilate holds firm for once. But again, in highlighting this of the few details, what we see John doing, or what most believe John is doing, is again what we've seen him do over and over again, in using a double meaning or some irony in these details. For sure, Pilate put that statement above Jesus as a way to mock and ridicule and insult the claim of his kingship. However, once again, more truth is being proclaimed than had been intended. As we've asked throughout this sermon series, who is this Jesus as he hangs on the cross, giving up his life, the sign above his head boldly proclaims for all the world to see and read and understand, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the only begotten Son of God incarnate, here giving his life for his subjects. A message on display for the whole world to see and believe. Which moves us into the next section of verses 23 through 24. We see here a, a clearer and more overt way what has already been alluded to earlier. As one commentary says, as we see the sovereignty of Jesus on display to the world in these details, God's word is also being fulfilled in them. In this crucifixion of Jesus, we see the soldiers do what they always did. One of the benefits of being an executioner was to be able to collect the articles of the prisoners as a spoil for your work, which is what they do to Jesus. Again, crucifixion was an awful, awful, torturous penalty where they put pain upon pain and indignity upon indignity. And we see that with Jesus. As his clothes are taken, one of the indignities that we see is that, yes, as part of the shame of the cross, he hung there naked for all to see. And the indignity upon indignity is that when his clothes are collected, while he is alive, standing there, the soldiers right in front of his face would take his earthly possessions. It's not that these days that people had closets full of clothing. They had a few articles of clothes. It was their most important possessions. And now right in front of a dying person, the soldiers would claim these articles for themselves. Because the person on the cross isn't going to need it anymore. They're mine. Because you're going to die. And yet, what these soldiers don't really even realize is that once again... What the student of scripture would realize is that this is fulfilling prophecy. Hundreds of years earlier, likely around a thousand years before the events took place, 
John tells us that it had been prophesied, quoting from Psalm 22:18, that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And the clear message is this. God is not absent from this scene. This is not a mistake or a, a chance of history that this is all taking place. But God's word is unfolding right before us in exactly the way that God had planned and designed it to take place. And these soldiers doing what they normally do are unwittingly fulfilling prophecy given so long ago. The fourth section, verses 25 through 27, turns our attention from the soldiers standing before Jesus to those who were his family members and friends. Now, in the names that are given of the people of Jesus' company that are around him, much more could be delved into and explored and explained about why each one of them was there. But let me highlight just a couple of things. First of all, Notice how small the crowd is and how few remain. Earlier, we remember hearing about the jealousy of the disciples of John the Baptist as it seemed like the whole world was going over to Jesus and that John was losing some of his following. We remember that after raising Lazarus from the grave, the religious leaders were fearful that if they let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. It was less than a week ago that in coming into Jerusalem, Jesus was celebrated and cheered by the crowds. We know of the 12 disciples. We know of the other believers. We know of the crowds numbered in the thousands that would gather to hear him speak and look to see if he would do one of his miracles. And now there remains only five people. We can name each one of them. Four women and the disciple that Jesus loved that we understand to be John. Jesus has been abandoned and rejected by so many. And it's sad. Now that details something that we notice, but what John highlights here is the care and the concern that Jesus gives to these faithful followers. Most notably, Jesus ensures that his mother Mary, still not very old, but very likely widowed at this point, Jesus makes sure that she would be taken care of. And through his word, Jesus places his mother, who would have been in his care, into the care of his disciple John. And first of all, it's remarkable just to think that while he's in the agony of pain on the cross, that he is thinking about and taking care of those that he loved. But additionally, it's notable that Jesus places the care of his mother into one of his disciples at care, not one of his family members. When Jesus was on this earth, he created a new community of faith. And in passing on the responsibility of care of his mother to his disciple, Jesus is passing on the work that he was called to do on this earth to those in the, faith, in the community of faith to continue that work in his absence. And then we get to the last section, verses 28 through 30. 
Again, we have John remind us that Scripture is being fulfilled. Jesus says, I thirst. And while there are a few options for what this text was fulfilling, it's most likely Psalm 69, 21 that says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. It's also noticeable that the branch that they used to bring that sour wine to the lips of Jesus was from the hyssop plant, that same branch that was used to paint the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts. And once the wine is drunk, Jesus says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let me start by highlighting the fairly unique way of describing Jesus' death as he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Back in John 10, 18, Jesus had said, No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so to be clear, John is not painting Jesus as a victim here. The Father is in control, Jesus is in control, and his death is a willful choice to give up his spirit. And he does this because it is finished. For Jesus, that means that the work that the Father had given him to do is now done. The righteous life has been lived. The law has been faithfully fulfilled in every detail. The cup has been, he had been assigned to drink is now empty. His work is over. The scripture is fulfilled. And so he can give up his spirit. For the father, this means that his wrath against all human sin has been satisfied in this sacrifice. His judge, just judgment against every rebellious act of every elect sinner has been atoned for. And that has great implications for us, the followers of Christ. Again, as we watch Jesus lay down his life in this straightforward explanation of what happened to him on the cross, we can't miss the purpose for what he is doing Jesus was not there because, like the other criminals, he was guilty of a crime. He, didn't, he hadn't been brought there by the will of man or by the accident of history. All of this was the outworking of God's plan, and that plan is the path to our victory over sin. In Jesus' humiliation and suffering, we see a glimpse of the suffering that is our due. The shame and the punishment that we should endure for rebelling against God, for disobeying him and ignoring him. But in Christ, all of that punishment was spent and the wrath of God was satisfied. Therefore, we claim that Jesus didn't on the cross just make salvation possible but on the cross, he fully paid for all our sins. It is over. There is nothing more that we have to do. There is nothing more that we can do to add to that sacrifice that was accomplished for us. 
We just turn to him in faith and gratitude for accomplishing for us the salvation of our souls. Christian, it is finished. The devil has no power over you. You are forgiven from the power and set free from the power of sin. It is finished. We no longer have to live meaningless lives that are just leading us toward eternal separation from God after our deaths. But in the face of death, there is victory. And we can even look at the grave with hope and with the confidence that the grave was not victorious because it is finished. His death is our victory. For those elect in Christ who put their faith in him, the price is paid. You are forgiven. You are going to heaven. What a joy to celebrate. Which is so strange of this text. Everything in the details are gory and awful and painful and sad to think about and witness. But the result of all of it is joy and glory and hope for all of us. Christ's shame leads to his and our glory and our hope. Praise God. And that should be our response. That as we look upon Jesus in the cross, as we see that he is still and always has been the king. That God was in control and he is enacting out his plan. That even though the soldiers were doing things of their own will, they were really fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord and that Jesus accomplished everything necessary for salvation. We have hope. And therefore we go and we praise God on Sunday mornings and in every area of our lives. We hate the sin that led Jesus to the cross and we repent from it and we turn from it. And we live in the comfort of knowing that we now belong to him. Amen is right. And that's what I hope for all of you. That as you look at Jesus at the cross, you see your sin being dealt with and being put to death. If you've never accepted that gift of grace, do so this morning. Thank Jesus that his work is on the cross was finished for you. And in accepting that, praise him with all your lives and live with that confidence that you are going to heaven because you have been and are forgiven. What a great joy. Let's pray and praise that God. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon you? It was I, Lord Jesus. I crucified you. My sins led you to that terrible death. But as we look at the details of that death, we celebrate and thank you that you fulfilled scripture. That you are the king. You've never lost control. And you surrendered your life faithfully as the perfect sacrifice for us. Thank you for finishing that work. 
Thank you for accomplishing for us what we could never on our own. May we not only thank you for that gift and recognize it, but may we surrender our lives to you in response to it. May our lives be put, may our sin be put to death. And may we point others to the hope that we have found in you so that they too can know that great gift of grace. Thank you for finishing that work on our behalf. May our response be a response of praise, glory, and honor in all that we do and in all that we are. This we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.